share with you real quick. We at the church receive a uh, a paper. Uh, some of you have heard of it called the Sword of the Lord. And um, I honestly don't know how we get it. It just comes. <laughs> Never signed up for it. Um, nonetheless, there is an article in here. I was flipping through it real quick this morning to see what was in here. And um, there is an article in here that I'd like you to at least consider looking at. It's in the, I'll, I'll set it on the back later. It's question and answer. It's a letter that was received a long time ago now. Um, and it's entitled, Can a Homosexual Be Saved? And uh, if you've ever heard me preach on it, which most of you have, it's going to be nearly identical to what I've preached. The reason why is because it's a letter that was written to Bill Rice many years back. And uh, although I never met Bill Rice, I worked for his son and his grandson for a number of years. And uh, so their preaching on the matter pretty much lines up with his preaching on the matter, which therefore is kind of what my preaching lines up with as well. And so, but it's a really good, it's got a, uh, six or seven questions uh, that he answers uh, in it. And, uh, and, and with most of us uh, working, and, uh, and, and this is a matter that could come up in conversation very easily in the workplace. Uh, it's worth looking at, worth reading through. I'll set that on the coffee table later on. Uh, feel free to look at that. And like I said, I think it's very helpful uh, uh, information in there. And just in case you're wondering, the answer is yes. Uh, that's the short, short answer, but uh, there's other questions in there that are very helpful, I think, as well. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 12 today. <clears throat> 2 Samuel chapter 12. Um, good to have Scotty and Michael back with us and some, uh, I think Scotty's daughter, if I remember uh, him saying she's coming. Uh, excited to have you all with us today. Uh, looking forward to meeting you after the service. Thank you for being with us today. Um, today's message is not a, uh, I'll, I'll give you a heads up, it's not the best first-time visitor at the church message. Um, it's a very tough topic. It's a very, uh, I think, important topic, something I've been praying about uh, for a while now and uh, <clears throat> was kind of brought back up again recently, and I felt like it's important that we touch on it and look at the Bible, what the Bible has to say about it. And I've been praying a lot this week because I, I don't want to say more than I need to, um, and I also don't want to say less than I should because it is a topic that is uh, not, not a highlight of the Baptist Church, of the Independent Baptist Church, and it's uh, something, though, that is prevalent today, and I hope that most of you have not heard about it. Um, that means it's being contained to a degree, but also at the same time, we need, to, we need to know about it so we know how to handle it. And specifically, we're going to be dealing with sin in the church today, and uh, even to a broader, or I guess more specific, um, uh, sin within the pastor. And... Uh, I want to be careful with it today, though, because I don't want it to be gossip, and I don't want it to be unnecessary slandering, so I'll be careful of, of mentioning names or anything like that. But at the same time, uh, for too long now, supposedly good churches have been covering up sin instead of calling sin what it is. And I think it's important that we as Christians understand what the Bible says about sin and how we should handle it, because when we handle it wrong, it, it ruins the testimony of the Lord, and uh, and so it's not a it's not a fun matter to talk about, needless to say. Uh, but I pray that God will use it to uh, help us, and uh, will challenge us to do right, uh, no matter what. Let's look in Second Samuel chapter twelve, verse number one. This is the uh, instance of Nathan 
approaching David about his sin with Bathsheba. It says in verse number 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 12, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. Remember, Nathan is the prophet of God. David is the king. And he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought up and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. Now some of you would understand this. Your pets are family, right? They're not just animals. They're family. And this man in this story, this lamb was not a, a, a stock animal to him. It was his pet, part of his family. As I said there, it was unto him as a daughter. Verse 4, And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress uh, for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man uh, that was come to him. And David's anger was kindled against the man. And he said unto Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee to the house of Israel and Judah. And if that uh, had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. <clears throat> Skip down for text's sake, to verse 13. And it says, And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. We're going to look at what happens when God's people sin. I can title it many different ways, but I think this is the simplest. What happens when God's people sin? Lord, I pray for your help this morning as I have throughout this week preparing for this message. God, I pray that you'd guard my, my mind and my thoughts, Lord, that I would think clearly. Lord, I pray that you would guide my mouth, that I would only say what, what I should. Lord, I don't want this to be slander, and I don't want this to be gossip. But Lord, I pray that you'd help me to say exactly what I need to say today. I pray as we look over these thoughts and over these verses, Lord, that I would present them clearly and correctly. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> There's a problem in society today, and it's not new, of religious leaders sinning and it being covered up. There's been a lot of talk about the Catholic Church and the disgusting things that have been going on within it uh, for a number of years and the thousands of people it has impacted and, uh, and, and how, how wicked it is. There was a poll taking place through Pew Research that asked, do you think that the sexual abuse and misconduct is more common among Catholic priests and bishops than it is among leaders of other religious traditions? In this poll, 6,364 people responded. 47% of them felt it was equally common amongst Catholics as it was among other religious leaders. And another 40, I believe it was 49%, that said that it was just 
confined to the Catholic Church, but 47% of the people polled, and I know that's just a little over 6,000 people, but they said, I believe it is common, equally common, not only amongst the Catholics, but among other religious leaders as well. So now you're looking at just the Catholic situation and seeing its influence on people's view towards the church, uh, towards our church. There was a newspaper article in a Fort Worth paper, and I want to preface this by saying I don't know the person who wrote it. I don't know much about their past, but it, it, it does appear that there's been some hurt in their life, and so there was a, an agenda behind the article. But uh, I would also don't want to say that it's not true what, what they said. This person in the Fort Worth Star, I believe was the name of the paper, said that she found 412 allegations of sexual misconduct in 187 independent fundamental Baptist churches or their affiliated institutions spanning over 40 states and the country of Canada. Independent fundamental Baptist churches. That would be what we are. Now I use the word fundamental very carefully um, in these days just because I'm not sure that I want to be associated with some of the things that that word connotates. We are that, but, uh, but also when I'm telling people who we are or what we are, I just say independent Baptist. But nonetheless, this person claimed to have found 187 different churches or their affiliated institutions, colleges or schools, uh, where sexual misconduct or allegations of sexual misconduct were placed. That shows if nothing else, that there's definitely a problem. The problem is, I, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I wonder how much of it we've heard about. Now, to some degree it's good in the sense that if we haven't heard about it, it's not influencing our community and their view towards the church. But the other question is, why aren't we hearing about it? And sadly, what we found is many people today, and sadly many pastors today, hide these situations instead of confronting the situation. They want to pretend it didn't happen. They want to pass blame on to someone else. And what we found is, in certain, uh, if I can use the word circles, um, we found there were people who had a job at a church, as a pastor, a youth pastor, whatever. They were accused and, and possibly even found guilty. But if they were accused and it wasn't taken to the police, what they would do is they would send that pastor or youth pastor to a different state, the pastor or youth pastor in a different church, instead of taking care of the problem. Uh, we are obligated, I believe, morally as Christians, that when there is a situation of abuse, whether it be sexual or of any other kind, to report it to the proper authorities. It's not my job as the pastor to, to deal with allegations and try to, to solve the problem. My job is to say, hey, to the police, here's what's been said, and let them handle it the way it's supposed to be handled. The authority of the church has nothing to do with, with, with this. That's the authority of the state that needs to handle it. Here in this passage, we see Nathan come to David, tells him a story, uh, and it worked. Two people, a rich man and a poor man, rich man had flocks of sheep. The poor man had one sheep, one lamb. And it wasn't just a, a, a farm animal to him. It was as, a, as, a, as his own child. Slept with him. Ate with him. That's a little over the top, I think. But, but it got the point across, did it not? 
And the rich man had a visitor come, and he didn't want to take out any of his flock, so he went and got his neighbor's one lamb, killed it, cooked it, prepared it for his, his uh, 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 friend that was traveling through. David got angry when he heard this, which I find interesting. But David got angry, and he said, uh, uh, that person is going to be put to death. They're also going to pay back fourfold what they've taken. Because this is wrong, and we will not stand for this wrongdoing. And then Nathan says to David, David, it's you. The story's about you. You're the rich man who took the poor man's sheep. David's reaction in verse 13, we'll come to it in a moment, but he says, I have sinned against the Lord. <clears throat> I want us to look at, it's, I don't know if it's a normal outline or not, but I want us to look first of all today that when it comes to God's people sinning, number one, we must address sin as sin. We can't tiptoe around it. We can't sweep it under the rug. We have to call it what it is, that it's sin. Sadly, many people will have excuses for why they do not want to discuss the sin at hand, why they don't want to bring it to light, why they don't want to handle it, why they want to sweep it under the rug. One of the excuses they may use is they'll say, well, uh, he's my friend. He's my friend. So I don't want to tell on him, so to say. I don't want to be a snitch. He's my friend, and I'll just handle it with him personally. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 13, you can turn there if you'd like, Romans chapter 13, <clears throat> verse number 9 and verse number 10. It says, For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, if there be any other commandment, <clears throat> it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill towards his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. He's my friend. Because I love my friend, I don't want to turn him in where the Bible says that love is the fulfilling of the law, which is love is doing right. Love is doing biblical. Love is obeying the Bible. And the Bible teaches us that sin is unacceptable. The Bible teaches us that sin carries a great punishment. And the Bible teaches us that we should never be okay with sin as God is never okay with sin. Here Nathan was a friend of David. He was a confidant of David. God did not send David's enemies to point out his sin. He could have, could he not? Could have sent armies to defeat David. Could have sent uh, uh, battles and different things. Uh, but what God sends is David's friend to David to confront him about the sin in his life. What kind of friend are you? It's not easy to come, from, come to someone who's doing wrong and say, you're doing wrong. It's easy with our children. <laughs> At least it is for me. Hey, kid, quit acting like your mom. No, I'm just kidding. I don't say that. Uh, well, my kids are doing wrong. I have no problem with saying, hey, kid, you're doing wrong. Stop it. I handle it in different ways, but ultimately that's what it is. My kid's doing wrong. I'm going to handle the situation. But when I have an adult friend or maybe someone older than me, someone that I look up to, doing something wrong, it's very hard to go to them and say, hey, man, what you're doing is wrong. I've told you about a past pastor of mine 
fell into sin. I didn't call and yell at him, although I was disappointed and hurt. I said, hey, just so you know, I love you. It doesn't mean that I'm okay with what he did. We, we have a, 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 um, a sickness in the church where we think, well, if he's the pastor, then he shouldn't say anything. If he's a, a, an, a, a, an older fellow in the church, shouldn't say anything. I respect him, so he, he probably knows better than me. I've probably just seen it wrong. Well, she's helped me out a lot. I, I just don't know that I feel comfortable with going up to her and, and telling her that what she's doing is wrong. Well, is it sin? God says, well, if you're a friend, you want to help them fulfill the law to do right. And we see that example in sending Nathan to David and saying, David, what you've done is, is wicked and it's wrong. 2 Thessalonians 3.15 says, Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. When a fellow Christian is sinning, you, you don't, you don't uh, abandon you don't say, I'm never speaking to that person again. You admonish them as a brother. You go to them and you say, what you're doing is wrong. Now they may say, I don't ever talk to me again. But if our effort is to do what God desires for us to do and to help people get right, we'll do just that. David didn't come to Nathan. Nathan came to David. Don't wait on your friends to reach out to you. Sometimes we see someone living in sin and, and we know they're living in sin. They know they're living in sin. And sometimes we say, well, until they, they'll eventually understand or realize or come to the point where they'll want to stop doing this. And when they do, I'll be here to help them. Don't wait for them to come to you. Go to them. It's not easy. It's, it's not easy at all. But confront sin no matter who it is whether it's a person in authority. And again, I don't, I don't want to get into politics and I don't want to bash the president. I don't think we should ever do that. But we look at some people in authority, even in a political world, and we see their wickedness, and yet we try to cover for them because they're not, we think, as wicked as this person. I saw a comment recently, a, a, a preacher posted a comment about the president, and in it, mentioned his, uh, his pride and some other sins. And a person commented on the post and he said, I, I always appreciate your, your thoughts. He said, but I believe our current president is the most godly president we've ever had. And I thought, well, I mean, we've had some pretty wicked presidents, so maybe the bar is low. <laughs> but I don't think so. And the problem is, is we try to to excuse sin because of certain people's positions. It doesn't matter who they are. If it's sin, we, we must call it sin. <clears throat> there is an article written by a preacher that came out last week, I believe. Um, well, I should preference this with this. And again, I want to be cautious, but I think it's important you understand where we're coming from today. There was a man who used to pastor in Maryland. He then went and began working for a Bible college in California. 
while he was working for the Bible College in California, a lady came forward and said that when she was 17 years old in the youth group of his church in Maryland, that the pastor and her had an improper relationship, a wrong, immoral relationship. He immediately said, it's not true, didn't happen, not the way she said it happened, none of that's true. He resigned his position at the college, and uh, which I thought was right to do. But within a month, I believe it was, he was hired on as an assistant pastor of a church in Jacksonville, Florida, while being investigated for this relationship with a minor. This was about a year ago. This past week, he was arrested and charged with three counts, uh, two felonies, or one felony and two misdemeanors, in regards to the actions that he had with this girl at the time. And they're saying that there's a possibility that there are more people involved. I don't know that to be true yet, but the police said that there's a possibility there are other people involved other than this one girl. Over the last year, I've been careful to comment on the situation because I do understand that accusations are sometimes made to hurt people when they're not true. And I know that if someone falsely accused me, I would hope that, that there would be people who would be willing to support me. Uh, but uh, when the charges were filed... I was quick to, to comment, we must call this what it is. An article came out by a preacher, I don't think I'm going to tell you his name, although I'm, I think it's important that we know who to be careful of. But he wrote an article, and I want to share some main points with you today on this article. I want you to think through these things and think, coming from a position of authority, this man is when he writes this article. Think about these thoughts. The accuser, this is the mindset that the accuser is always evil and they're always in the wrong. The accuser, the person who makes the accusation. In his article he says this, if the accusation is brought in the wrong way, we should not listen to it. He said there's a right way and a wrong way to, to bring an accusation and if they do it in the wrong way then we shouldn't listen to it. It's probably not true. It sounds dangerous to me. He then goes on to say, an accusation should not be assumed as true, the idea of innocent until proven guilty. But then he says, assume the accusation is a lie. I don't know, that doesn't really sound right to me. He said, we need to figure out the agenda of the accuser before we put any merit to it. He says that the, uh, the public accusations are never reliable. They come out publicly and make the accusation. It's not reliable. Don't listen to it. He says, don't look in, into the accusation. Mind your own business. If, it's not, if you're not being accused, then mind your own business. Don't look into it. He literally uses the words, mind your own business. That's dangerous. He says, always defend the accused until they are proven guilty. Now, this point is, again, dangerous in this way because he spent the last year defending the accused openly, blatantly, loudly. And now he looks like a fool. But he says, no, that's the right thing to do. You always, you always defend the accused. He says, if, if the accusation is brought to you, don't tell anyone. Don't spread the accusation. I understand we don't want to spread gossip and rumors, but wait a second. <laughs> that doesn't sound right. And then he says, always identify yourself with the accused. 
Now think about this for a second, if you will. And again, this is a preacher. He's not a, he was a pastor. He's not currently a pastor. He's a traveling preacher and evangelist to a degree. He preaches locally here once a year. And not here at this church in Lexington, at a different church. This thought is, these thoughts are disgusting and they're wrong. Because for the last year, he stood up and said that this girl who made the accusation, she's immoral still to this day. Just look at her Facebook page, you can see it. That's what he said. She's not a good person. She's not in church anymore. Well, I would say, well, if my pastor treated me like that, I probably wouldn't be either. You, you listen to these thoughts of, of the mindset of always believe the preacher, always believe the person in authority, just because someone's accusing them of it, they're probably lying about it no matter what. They didn't come at it with the right attitude. What's their agenda? They came at it publicly. And so he's saying, that the, isn't this shaming? It's victim shaming is what it is in, in today's modern terms. And you wonder why people are so afraid to come forward and share what's happened to them. Because there are other people out there saying this person and pointing out everything about them that's wrong today. You know, it takes two people in most cases to do wrong when it comes to morality. Not in every case, but in most cases. But that doesn't mean because one person isn't what you think they should be that the other person was right. When someone sins, whether it's a friend or an enemy, a stranger or someone we know, sin is sin and we must call it that. We have to stop making excuses for people when they sin. Nathan, in verse 7 here, he says to David, Thou art the man. He doesn't beat around the bush. He says, David, you're this filthy, rotten person who stole from his neighbor. He goes on to say, God's given you everything. And if it wasn't enough, he'd give you more. And yet still, just as Adam and Eve took of the one thing they shouldn't take of, David took of something that was not his. He murdered Uriah, and he took his wife. It's wrong. And there's no excuse about it. I'm thankful that people that I've um, been around in ministry and served with in ministry, I'm thankful that when sin came... Uh, to their pastor, they stood up and they said, this is wrong, we will not stand for it, we will do what is right. And I'm thankful that, that those pastors are in prison today. And I'm saddened by the fact that fellow pastors continue to say, well, but he's a preacher, and she's a bad person, we shouldn't believe her. Why would she come up with it now, now that it's 15 years later? I can't answer that question. I don't know. But if it's true, we better do something about it. And according to the police, it is true. We have to address sin as what it is. It's sin. For too long in the independent Baptist world, in certain sectors of it, sin has consistently been hidden, it's been swept under the rug. 
It's been played off as a lie. And sadly, people continue to believe those that say that. And there are still men that are pastoring churches that have no right biblically to be pastoring churches. Maybe they've confessed their sins and maybe they've gotten right with God, but according to the qualifications of a pastor, they are no longer qualified. And yet, churches still let them pastor. And pastors still support them in their ministries when it's blatantly, biblically wrong. We have to be cautious of that. We have this article that I shared with you today, which I think is a great article and you think you need to read it. But in that same uh, publication, the man who wrote this about the accuser sometimes write artic writes articles in it. And actually today I just told my wife I need to get a hold of these people and ask them to stop sending me this. I flipped through it to see if I could find this man who wrote this article in here, and he's not in this article, uh, so maybe, maybe he's not publishing stuff in there anymore. I don't know. We have to be aware of these things. We have to be cautious of being friends with people who are friends with these people. Because I can tell you there are pastors who refuse to admit the wrongdoings of their friend because he mentored them. Because he helped them. And listen, bad people can still do good things. And they say, well, this pastor helped me and he mentored me and he trained me and he's, he's a big part of my ministry. Don't you dare talk bad about him. And I've been told from a pastor that I would consider an acquaintance close to a friend. He said, if you have something bad to say about him, you don't say it to me. He said, everything that's been said about him is lies. I said, well, no, I know for a fact it's not. You see, this, this idea of this person can't do wrong because they were good to me. If you're a spouse, you understand that people who are good to you can do wrong to you. I'm not the perfect husband. There have been times I've wronged my wife, but do you know that I love my wife? Katie would never tell you, oh, no, Vince is perfect. She wouldn't. I don't even think she'd jokingly say it. <laughs> Just because I'm good to her most of the time doesn't mean that I do wrong. I don't do wrong, excuse me. Call sin what it is. We must address sin as sin. It is that, and we see the perfect example of it here in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Then I want us to look secondly and lastly today. When we sin, when we're the ones that sin, when we sin... We must admit it and we must repent of it. And we see David giving us this great example here. David, there's so much to learn from David because, as I've said before, uh, he's a great example of us. We see his sin in the Bible. It points it out for us. We also see how David handles his sin. This has been at least nine months, if not more than that, since his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, most people think it's been about a year Nathan comes and he approaches David and he says, you're the man, you're the one who sinned, you're the wicked uh, one, you're the one who you said deserves to die. And in verse 13, well, we skipped over verses 10, 11, and 12. It's just Nathan telling David the punishment that was coming to him. David in verse 13 said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
He admitted, I have sinned, I have done wrong, I'm guilty. When we sin, we must admit it and repent of it. This man that I told you about that had been arrested in Maryland, to this day he has not admitted to any wrongdoing. He has stood fast by his statement of, no, this is not true. I've heard people say, you need to forgive him. Uh, in this past year, in this process of people trying, who were standing up for him saying, um, uh, you're supposed to forgive him and restore him. Well, when he asks for forgiveness, he can be restored. He can be forgiven before that. He cannot be restored before that. We should forgive people the moment they do wrong to us. But restoration comes with repentance. In Psalm 51, we've studied it before as David's prayer of repentance to God for this sin. In Psalm 51, 3, he says, For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. In verse 7, he says, Purge me. In verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, and renew a right spirit within me. In verse 12, he says, Restore me. In verse 14, he says, Deliver me from my blood guiltiness. David is an example to us that when we do wrong, we must admit that we've done wrong. We must repent of our wrong. And we must ask for forgiveness of God. And very quickly, after Nathan has approached him about his sin, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't punishment coming, right? It goes on in verse 14. Uh, How be it, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. Sometimes we, we assume forgiveness means no consequence. Sin always has a consequence. Every single time. The consequence can be more severe at times. But sin always has a consequence. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The first word of verse number 9 is so crucial. If. When we sin, we must confess our sin to God. 1 John is written to Christians. It's written to me. It's written to you. If we confess our sins, then God will be faithful to forgive and to cleanse. If. And if we're going to walk around sinning and saying, well, uh, uh, God will forgive me. See this illustration here, not illustration, but the story here of David in verse 14, it says, Because thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. David was a man after God's own heart. That's what the Bible tells us. David was appointed by God to be king. When people saw David, they saw God. In the sense that when his enemies looked at David, they knew God was with him from the early, earliest days of his life. This was evident. So when David sinned this, this, this great sin, he gave occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, to say, oh, his God isn't that great. 
Look what he did. <clears throat> when God's people sin, he gives occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. From the pastor on down to anybody else, when we're at work and we say something we shouldn't say, he gives reason for our co-workers to go, yeah, I don't need that. When we are uh, outwardly Christian, so to say, and we do something public, or the community goes, I don't want anything to do with that. When a church dispute goes public, it gives reason for the community to say, why in the world would I ever go there? They're just a bunch of striving, uh, fighting, bitter individuals. church I know of went through a church split a few years back and they uh, recently a, a, a member of the church passed away and the family of the, the members asked for the uh, another pastor to do the funeral in that church person who used to be a member in that church that split and the church said you can have the funeral here but that person cannot perform the funeral The son of the person who died wrote a letter to the editor of the local newspaper thanking the pastor for allowing them to have the funeral at his church even though that they were not members of his church and scolding the other church for not allowing them to have the funeral because of who was preaching the funeral. What does that do for the community when they look at the church? Because people were bitter over something in the past and they said, we don't want that person coming through our doors. And I promise you, this person didn't do anything wrong in this situation. So we're not going to have anybody, we're not going to have him come back because he left our church. Now the community knows it. What kind of impact can you have for God when you're openly sinning? Bitterness, it's a sin. Pride, it's a sin. Sins can, can range, obviously, uh, from what we view as big sins and little sins. God views sin as sin. But as society views sins as big sin and little sin, do they not? This crime has this much jail time and this crime has this. But when uh, God's people do wrong, how they handle it impacts the gospel. When someone sins, we must address it as just that, as sin. When we sin, we must admit it and repent of it. David did this. I encourage you today, don't ever ignore sin. Whether it be this pastor's sin, which I pray consistently, every day for God's help and protection over me and my decisions. For the longest time, I'd say that would never happen to me. Then it happened to my pastor. That changes the viewpoint a little bit. And things, what I would consider far worse than what he did, 
happened to another pastor that I'd sought counsel from and advice from in the past. And another. No matter who's the one sinning, we must understand that sin is wrong and we must handle it correctly. When we sin, we must handle it correctly. If we don't, we affect the impact of the gospel. I pray that we would guard our hearts, we'd guard our lives. I pray that we'll make right decisions, that we'll do right, that we'll simply just do what God wants us to do. And I pray that when someone else sins, if we're their friend, I pray that we'll go to them and we'll say, friend, this is wrong. You need to get right. May we never be guilty. May we never be guilty of shaming a person who was wronged to stand up for a friend who was wrong. Bob Jones, the founder of Bob Jones University, preached a message. It was very simple. Do right, do right, do right. Sounds easy, doesn't it? It is, to a degree, if you're living the way God wants you to live. Do right when your friends do wrong, address it, handle it, do what you're supposed to with it. When you do wrong, repent of it, confess it to God, and get it right. I pray God will protect our church from accusation. I do. We're living in a society where it's not a surprise sadly anymore when an accusation comes. But I pray God would protect our church from, from false accusation. I pray that God would protect me as the pastor uh, from doing evil. I pray God would protect you so that you wouldn't do evil. I pray that we'd always handle sin the way we're supposed to, whether it be our friends or our enemies, that we would just do right. Lord, I pray for your help. I know it is disappointing and displeasing to you to watch the church that's supposed to be the lighthouse and the example falter and fail. Lord, I know that pride has been within the church for a long, long time now. But God, I pray that you'd use this specific church, Bible Pathway Baptist Church, to be a true lighthouse in this community. We would always stand against wrong. Lord, I pray that even when our friends or our mentors or uh, uh, people in authority sin, that, Lord, we would not cover it up. God, that we would be honest and truthful about it, that we'd handle it biblically, but, Lord, that we'd be honest and truthful about it, and we'd call it what it is, sin. Lord, I pray that we would be a place that people who have been hurt can come to and find help. Lord, I pray that as we fall into sin, I pray that you would help us to be as David uh, was here and admit to our sin, confess it, so that we can be restored in our relationship with you. God, I pray that you would help us to do right, be an example of what you want us to be. I pray at work that you'd help us, and, and maybe we've, we've hindered our testimony in the past, but God, I pray that you would uh, help us to rebuild it. God, that we can be the right kind of testimony to our coworkers, to our family members, to our neighbors. Lord, guide us. Lord, guard us. And Lord, use us. God, we pray for your protection. We need it. Without you, we are nothing. 
And although I can sit here and say I can't imagine myself ever doing these things, Lord, I pray that you would guard, protect our marriages, protect our homes, protect our children, protect our testimonies, I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for your good attention. Uh,